Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. We were bugged and followed, and we often had conversations in the middle of the street and traffic because we knew. It wasn't even pointless to, to you know, try to find it. And there was a moment where there's this big discussion about the American woman that came to work for the government. Like, the reality is I didn't have a U.S. passport. I had a green card. I believe I was the picture on the, I hadn't even updated the green card, right? Like, like it, this was so loose and not, you know, I'm a kid out of college going, I'm going, right? Like, there's nothing's gonna stop me. And they're having a discussion about the American woman. And I was literally barred from going into the office for at least two weeks. That sounds like a pretty harrowing crucible, doesn't it? And would you believe this terrifying trial didn't just happen to today's guest, Ruja Markovic? She actually stepped into a crucible that already existed in the early 90s when her home nation of Yugoslavia was torn apart by political unrest that led to a war of unfathomable tragedy. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. In today's episode, Ruja describes not only the dangerous experiences she endured as a young woman committed to helping her homeland, but also how she leveraged those profoundly difficult moments then and in the years since to build a life of significance as a communications executive and an advocate for the liberating power of education. She has seen more horrors and heartache than many you'll hear, but they have not sapped her spirit. In fact, they have steeled her resolve to live her life in service to others. Thank you so much for being here. And um, boy, you've had such an incredible life and amazing experiences. Um, uh, obviously, uh, some of them center around the former Yugoslavia, but I'd like to start with kind of your background, how you grew up, which I believe was in, you know, what was then Yugoslavia. So just talk about, you know, your parents, grandparents, just what life was like for you as a small child growing up in Yugoslavia. So we actually immigrated when I was four and a half. We came to Oh, wow. Okay. However, my grandfather was a POW of World War II and a Nazi concentration camp survivor. So the Germans had a policy towards the Serbs that was unique because we fought back with everything we had. And so when his camp was liberated by the British, they gave him options of going back home, going to the US or going to Australia and they were sponsored by a church group in Racine, Wisconsin, <laughs> hence the connection. Um, and the entire group of POWs ended up in Racine, Wisconsin. So today, some of my closest friends are grandchildren of those same POW survivors mm -hmm. who became each other's godparents, parents to each other's children. And that has lasted well over 40 years. Wow. So you had really a whole family, uh, extended family and friends growing up in Racine. So even though you were a bit young to remember a lot of where you came from, 
where you came from came with you. Well, it completely came with me. And the backstory really is that my father saw his father go off to war when he was four years old. He didn't see him physically again mm. until he was 27. So we came to the U.S. because I, as a little girl, my mom having lost her mom at the age of seven, I spent a summer with my cousin's grandmother back in, in what was then Yugoslavia. I'm named after my father's grandmother. So I spent like six months scribbling postcards and driving my parents absolutely bananas over when do I get to meet her? When do I get to meet her? When Like it's around the corner. So when my grandfather came here, he obviously, I mean, it took probably 12 to 15 years, brought my grandmother here. And then my father, who was the only one to graduate from college of his brothers and sisters, was the only one to stay behind. And he literally was the one that at the embassy knew because every relative that decided to go, he was the one that ushered them in. And even when it was our turn to come, we came in a tourist visa. My father was working as an engineer. My mother was working for the biggest record production company in the country. We were living upper middle class Eastern European life. They traveled to Italy and Greece every kind of summer, winter kind of thing. They had this life. And then I tugged at their heartstrings. We came for a visit and my father at the time, two things, he missed his father, obviously. And this was, I think the, the greatest tug, but the other, because his father was in the US and because Yugoslavia was a, a communist country, but a quasi sitting next to the Iron Curtain, we looked like a picnic. We could travel. You felt as free as a bird on the street. As long as you climbed up the ladder from a business perspective, you saw a ceiling. And if you had a parent that was living in the US, your ceiling was shorter than everybody else's. And so when he came to the US and he saw a system that actually gave you back tax dollars, like that thought just kind of blew his mind. <laughs> and he went back and we went back home. He made plans. And then we immigrated um, September 18th, 1973. Wow. And you were four years old. I was four years old. Sadly, my grandfather died six months later. Oh. So my father had those six months, but that's all he had. And, um, you know, immigrant life is never easy, but particularly when you studied in school, Russian or German. Hello. <laughs> and he's an, he, he's an engineer. And so um, he started first at a gas station, then at American Motors, which Gary probably remembers well. Absolutely, um, yeah. And in fact, he worked the graveyard shift and for the first several years, I only saw my parents kind of in passing. And I was the classic latchkey kid who, um, you know, basically walked to school every morning and back. And sometimes my dad would try to come pick me up and wouldn't see me from snowbanks. And so we would kind of do this. Um, 
make a long story short, he gets laid off at one point. Now, in this entire time, my mom and I are besides ourselves. I want to go home. Like, I don't know why I'm here. None of this makes any sense to me. My mom has had at the time four sisters who had kids. We were all very, very close. And that bond for me left a lasting to this day, really. And they were back in Yugoslavia while you were here in Wisconsin. So my dad was so adamant. He's like, we're going to go home after I work as an engineer for one day in this country, period, end of discussion. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And literally gets laid off. He takes his diploma and he was interviewed at Modine Manufacturing, which is a big company in Racine, and hired on the spot. But here's where the story, um, it's very much the seed of the way I see my life having evolved from that point. He gets a job working for the man whose manuscript he was translating because it was published in a big kind of um, technical journal who happened to be in the same concentration camp with my grandfather. Oh my so gosh. it was one of those moments where you knew you were supposed to be where you were. Mm-hmm. And so see, it still gives me goosebumps. And from that point on, he really didn't look back. We made it through five years, five years before we went back home for a visit. And my dad knew if we'd gone any sooner, um, we probably would have changed our minds because while it's while this country offers you all sorts of promise going having to not having and doing it willingly is tough so you went from having the standard life of an apartment a car travel you had this life to pumping gas third shift i don't see my parents we're scrambling to save enough to buy a first home. When the war started in the Balkans, most of our family friends thought my my father was um, prophetic because at that time in the 70s, nobody left. This wasn't this mass exodus period in time. Right, because because life was good. Just to cycle back for the audience that may not know, I think... um, a guy by the name of Tito, wasn't he? Was sort of the guy in control of Yugoslavia. And while it was communist, it's not like you know East Germany or Hungary or Bulgaria or some other parts in Eastern Europe. They were pretty you know locked down. And uh, you know if you sort of breathed against the government, you'd probably be in some prison. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but relative to other, you know, if you were in uh, East Germany, for instance, you'd be kind of maybe a little envious. Some of the folks in Yugoslavia, especially ones, you know, middle class, upper middle class, like your family. So at the time, it seemed like, why would you leave Yugoslavia? It has so much promise. And And my father, things look so good. He tells stories to this day of running into Gandhi on the streets of Belgrade, because as a non-aligned, as part of the Mm non-aligned movement, you had all of this excitement happening within the capital city. And again, people thought he was crazy flat out. So he literally retired from Modine Manufacturing. He spent 25 great years 
and I'll say the highlight of his career is he got to work on um, the first cooling engine for um, the Dodge Viper and the Porsche. <laughs> and, you know, he, he lived his, <laughs> what I call his childhood dream out um, yeah. every day. And we were very, very blessed. In the middle of that, in order to go up the corporate ladder, he had to take a position somewhere else, anywhere else. And we moved to Jefferson City, Missouri, where we had Greek neighbors, and that made our street the most international in the 700-mile radius. <laughs> and it was the best thing that could have happened to us because what comfort zone after that? When you live in an immigrant corridor that is Milwaukee to Chicago to Indiana, you're in a bubble your home could, could be figuratively anywhere, right? Um, right? Because everything within the home still feels like you're at, back home. Right. And so there is this, um, and there's pressure to be that way within an immigrant community. God forbid we all forget anything, right? So right. you cut yourself off in many ways, certainly back then, it's to a lesser degree today. Because the world today, to a lesser degree, has all sorts of opportunities to communicate well, and travel. It's so much more integrated and global. And yeah, I mean, there are advantages to being with those that you know and the, the people group and the background. On the other hand, you don't expose yourself to, uh, you know, part of what's new and different people groups. And I get it. Uh, and part, so, of, part of that experience in Missouri, first of all, I got to see what I, I get to see a, a different face of America, if that makes any sense, right? You know, the right. moment the moving man, van pulled into the driveway, people coming out with cookies and pies and like this one little Mayberries. <laughs> right? But the other thing that happened because truly we were different, you know, you right. know how different you are when people are like, and I'm in the store with my mom and they're like, is that Chinese or Mexican? <laughs> right? Spanish, right? Like not even and not even close, right? So you knew we were like dropped in the middle of nowhere. Right. But my parents worried I would forget. And so then became the during summers I was practicing Cyrillic, right? Like I I mean, so when what and they would send me back, right? So I would spend summers with cousins in Yugoslavia. From, from so, the age just, of 13 on. So were you, uh, did you grow up in sort of the Serbian part of Yugoslavia? Yes. Well, I guess your family. Yes. Okay. Right. So I, I should right. know that when I think of Cyrillic, I think of like the Russian alphabet, but in okay. Serbian, is that they also use they also Cyrillic? They also use Cyrillic. Okay. We use both, not interchangeably, okay. obviously. Right. One thing that happened right. when the communists put the country together is that they kind of yeah. made this magic happen of it could be this or it could be that. So there was easier okay. communication across the whole of the country, but they sent me back every summer. So needless to say, on top of the fact that my language skills are such that you can't tell that I grew up here in my native language. I also had a sense for politics, economics. How could you not? Because I spent, you know, two months really every summer for summer after summer. Right. And my greatest compliment was when kids were surprised that I had like shoes that said made in the U.S. 
because they, <laughs> they didn't put it together, right? And that was my pride and joy because I would I would spend the first two weeks kind of being quiet, so that uh -huh. I wouldn't give myself up to be kind of rusty. <laughs> um, so when the opportunity came to be over there, it was a natural. It was kind of a natural progression. So did part of these experiences fuel your desire to be a journalist and go to Northwestern and the Bedill School? Was there a link there between? You know, how did all that happen? So as a kid, the one thing that we never missed were the evening news. And World News Night right. was like the be-all, end-all. <laughs> and the reason is because at the time, if a phone rang, you knew somebody died or someone was born, right? right. Your, your ability to communicate with family was so limited that that right. was the window to the rest of the world. And we'd all be listening for something in Europe right like just something so that you felt like you felt connected and so those were my heroes so i literally wrote to walter cronkite in kindergarten for career day and they wrote back wow. and that still sits in waterwood's elementary school as a letter from walter cronkite people i'm sure but that was my goal so there was no there and the ridiculous part is I was a math whiz. I mean, I took advanced calculus in college, like as a joke, <laughs> right? So, I mean, in retrospect, somebody should have said, is this really the path you want to go down? Right. You're an immigrant. English is your second language, you know, <laughs> and I can't spell to save my life. Is this like, this is the path? It was the path. <laughs> I've never known another journalist who was any good at math. In fact, I used to say in newsrooms I worked in that there should be a big alarm that would go off whenever a journalist tried to do math so that everybody knew, whoop, 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 journalist doing math, back away. So bravo to you. So I know one of the key points in your story is going to Yugoslavia, I think the early 90s, and um, by, I guess by then life was different than when so, you know you in your early formative years and um but not that different so here's the thing that haunts me to today i watched especially in those late 80s early 90s years where because the moment tito died suddenly the debt is due right Right. Suddenly, you know, the, the head of the, the mob family, which is really how you need look at kind of a dictator and how, yeah. he, how he lives. Suddenly the debt was due. Suddenly they were under the kind of austerity measures that you talk about today, Europe having implemented during this last economic crisis. They were rationing toothpaste. Like there's this moment in time yeah. of how did we go from that to this? And also, when Tito died, the, um, you're suddenly looking into the Constitution, which is meaningless when you have a dictator. And they're right. going, okay, we're going to have a presidency in every state, if you will, of this union. We'll have a president that will serve for a year. So think about how difficult it is to do things within a four-year period, right? Within a year, it's impossible. It became a zoo. And it became this, there was a lot done and Tito did a lot that actually Saddam Hussein learned from. In fact, the same lunatic that built Tito's bunkers <laughs> built Hussein's bunkers. 
Wow. And the same kind of seasoning the stew of as long as there's friction, people will look to me for peace. And so you're in a communist country and they're starting to give more favor religiously to certain groups. Right, because you, you had, I mean, you know way more than me, but Serbians, Bosnians, people of maybe Christian, Orthodox background, Muslims, I mean, it's uh, background. So it seems like Tito seemed to be able to hold, you know, what was maybe festering challenges that had gone on for hundreds of years. It wasn't like this came from nowhere, no, all no, of these no. this, frictions. This is thousands of years in the making. However, World War One and World War Two were brutal in the Balkans. And what the communists did is basically rewrite history to suit themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, once he died, this became this simmering stew. It's the best way to explain it. And the lid going, especially from an economic perspective. This was what I call 84 to 88, 89. Then comes a president that goes, this is crazy. Let's actually change the way, uh, let's change our economic policy and let's privatize. So I'm in Serbia in 1990 watching people take two by, you know, literally four by four piece of land in front of their home and open a little shop and start selling whatever, right? Privatization started And I remember how hopeful I was that they had a chance to actually become this vibrant European country. By March of 91, that was over. Mm. Like this. And it was over because the politics had outpaced the economics. And it happened that quickly. That's an important lesson. So uh, if one understand, there was a US Congresswoman that asked, can you go and be like a communications liaison with some U.S. person was going to be prime minister? Correct. And, so, you know, if one understand, there was going to be 10 people and turns out you were the only one on the plane. So just talk about that whole, that must have been an amazing experience, that whole, because here you weren't coming to see family, you were coming there professionally correct. to help, your, you know, so uh, the, the country of your birth. The war began... And I remember even friends from school, now university friends, being like, how can you live with yourself as whatever ethnicity you're associating with what's happening in the media? And I think um, for me, the heartbreak was I have family in trouble, right? They're in, so I had an aunt and cousins in Sarajevo. I had an aunt cousins in Bosnia and out of my mom's four sisters of the five of them four had a daughter each we were incredibly close their kids are like my kids and so this is happening I wrote to Walter Cronkite in kindergarten so I'm watching um, Nightline and I'm watching Serbs bomb churches the only problem is the only churches I see falling are Serbian. And my head's going, if you can't get it right, Houston, we're in trouble. Hmm. And so I reached out to a couple of Jim Moody, I believe, the congressman from Wisconsin, who had actually spent Hmm. some time in the Balkans. 
as a young man after I think serving in the military, something to that effect, and um, had run into Helen Delich Bentley. So she was married Bentley, but she was a Serb. Oh, wow. I think she was a congresswoman from Maryland. Yes, I, I live in Maryland, so that name. Years, for many, yeah. many years. And she kind of put me on her radar and calls me up one morning at like 3.30, literally. The woman never slept. <laughs> and was, you know, we need your help. We have um, this team of young journalists I'm assembling, Milan Ponich, who was at the time... CEO of ICN Pharmaceuticals. He had zero reason, zero reason to actually go do this. But a personal friend and a lifelong friend had at the time been politically involved in the country. And so as a personal favor, he said yes. And so he gets the State Department to approve the fact that he has a U.S. Not, not to lose his U.S. citizenship, he serves as prime minister. And they were outnumbered, really, from a press perspective. There was so much Western media that they couldn't handle it. And every time we'd see a report on the news, my angst was, just get it right. This isn't about whose side I am. This isn't a, sport, a sporting event. This is the moment you get it wrong. You have now proven to dictator A, B, C, or D, because mind you, they just woke up from communism five seconds ago, right? They have no other sense, right? You have just proven that jerk right, that the world is manipulating the situation politically. And when they don't get it right on, you know, on major television news or, or look, Chicago trip, I went right before I went overseas, I was in a meeting with a then editor who happened to be Greek, which made me crazy because he should know better. In the sense of there's a big picture on the front page saying uh, Croatian soldier holds cross of bombed church. Well, here's the problem, it's a Serbian cross. So is he happy? Like the context of the photo was so off mm. that my head is exploding going, these are basics. This is not, I wouldn't, expect a, a U.S. journalist to necessarily understand the inner politicking within Serbia, within Croatia, because we are known for five levels of chess, nothing simple, and everything right. is some sort of game. But why you can't expect, you know, you can assume that they're going to be professional, and if they don't understand, they will ask questions, of, I'm sure they had interpreters with them, and try to get it right because this is sort of a cauldron of nationalities and people groups and you know making mistakes in this case I, I don't know if it can cause lives but it can cause a lot of damage i had a penny for every time cnn showed you one city and talked about another you don't know the difference but i know the difference mm -hmm. and so to me not only are they putting my chosen profession into big question mark right neon signs going is this really is this as good as it gets, right? Is this as much as they care? Once I'm there, and I'll never forget arriving, um, and I'll never forget the day that we went to Kosovo, which is still a mess, with Cyrus Vance and Lord Owen. And Cyrus, was, was he Secretary of State? 
Yes. Undeclared. And he, okay. you know, a, dip- yeah. a U.S. diplomat of yeah. what I call yeah. enormous stature. I've only been starstruck sure. once, and that was it. Yeah. So the level of complexity to the situation was heartbreaking. There were no easy answers. But at one point, the Italian foreign minister raged at the press corps going, when you publish that there is fighting where there is not, tomorrow there will be, and who bears responsibility for that? Because the biggest issue in these kinds of conflicts is not hatred, it's fear. I'm living next Mm -hmm. to my neighbor, and I don't know what he stockpiled in his basement. So the first incidences of what they later named ethnic cleansing were people in cities cut off, right? There's no internet. I don't know what's going on. I'm hearing things through radio that isn't accurate. And we're probably next. So they took the minority of people in that city and bust them out for their own safety. This happened over and over again. The problem is, is this the big light bulb of what are they doing turned on and all sides stopped taking prisoners. So the level to which it went from bad to slaughter overnight. I want to rewind. But I know we're getting kind of off tangent, so I no, 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 no. I just want to rewind a bit, Ruja, because you said something in the about fear being the driving force behind this. And Warwick mentioned um, that there were initially going to be ten young student journalists who were going to go over there and who were going to help sort of sort through this, help the the acting prime minister deal with this. You're the only one who showed up. You're the only one who wasn't afraid to go there. I kind of know the answer to this question because I knew the young woman you were before you went there because we worked together at the paper in Racine when you were an intern in 1989. I knew the the steel in your spine. I knew who you were then. But for our listeners who did not know you then, what was it that kept you from being too afraid to get on the plane and get off the plane? What nine people dropped out, you didn't. Why? So... The morning that Helen Bentley called me, I had the same experience my father had when he was hired by a man who was in the same concentration camp with him. I had a moment of clarity of, I meant to do this. So there was not, it was this, you see the road turning. And in very many ways, you know, I had my father screaming in my ear going, you also have an economics degree, go get a job, right? Stop working with, I was working with a small media agency in Chicago. And so the road very dramatically turned. And this was very much all I hoped for was to use my language skills to um, see my family, right? So, you know, a combination of hopes and um, dreams and every door opened, right? I could have been at Reuters or AP or after all of that happened, but I saw the underbelly of the, it saved me 20 years of sitting in a news organization, thinking that the power of the pen is the power of the pen. You can't take the person out of the story in these circumstances. People- And and, and unlike some other journalists, 
you knew the whole history. You know, you understand, you know, the the whole the complex contextual situation. So you could have been at Reuters and work your way up the ladder being successful, but it sounds like you felt like, well, nothing wrong with success, but I have some unique uh, abilities and background well, to no, hopefully maybe me, help a little bit. That. Let me restate that. Every door yeah. when I came into the Balkans opened and I could have stayed at Reuters in the Balkans and covered the right. war, right? Okay. But I saw the underbelly of, I saw my heroes sitting at the press club bar, sending kids to the front lines as stringers completely detached from the reality right. because it wasn't affecting them. It wasn't their family. Isn't that what they call in journalism, phoning it in yeah. kind of thing? They, you know, rather than being out there on the front lines, they just kind of, I mean, I don't know, that's just a, it's a sad image. But, but, but from but, a family yeah. perspective, the other thing that got me on the plane is immigrant communities when the phone rings, you answer it, right? And back in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, you know, when your flat tire went out, you had to call somebody, right? Right. So I grew up with this sense of duty, right? And so the moment that I was tapped and I was going, people came out of the woodwork to carry medicine for family, money for family. Mm. I mean, I walked in with, a let's just say, a whole lot of money that was not mine basically hidden on me wow. because just because of the situation is not going to stop people from helping their family. They want to help. And so I understand there was a couple of challenges you faced. I think you were maybe mistaken for somebody else and, you know, potentially on some arrest list. And then I think there was another time when they put maybe you potentially part of some prisoner exchange. I mean, this wasn't all, this wasn't like going to the French Riviera, sort of a no, nice fun holiday. No, 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 I mean, no. You had some challenges. Um, you know. We were bugged and followed, and we often had conversations in the middle of the street in traffic because we knew. It wasn't even pointless to, to you know, try to find it. And there was a moment where there's this big discussion about the American woman that came to work for the government. Like, the reality is I didn't have a U.S. passport, I had a green card. I believe I was the picture on the, I hadn't even updated the green card, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it, this was so loose and I, you know, I'm a kid out of college going, I'm going, right? Like there's nothing's going to stop me. And they're having a discussion about the American woman. And I was literally barred from going into the office for at least two weeks. And I was holed up in, Panich's private office, which used to be Tito's office. So that was just a jolly good time because I was, you wow. know, I got to comb through all sorts of all sorts of stuff. But the first time that it came out, there was a headline. And so my first reaction is my mother's gonna kill me. <laughs> it, had to do with, it had zero to do with the severity of the situation it had to do with my aunts are going to flip out and my mother's going to kill me right what's happened to ruja in america they just sort of corrupted her what's she done exactly Exactly. (laughs) well and then there was a whole prisoner exchange episode and um that was pretty dicey too right it was sort of on the border between so we leave i leave the balkans um we were threatened with house arrest when Panic ran against Milosevic. 
and we absolutely found evidence that he had stolen the election. Wow. We had 24 hours to flee. But that wasn't good enough for me. To put it this way, um, when you go through something like that, that's so much bigger than yourself, you can't just come back here and get a job. Like, I mean, your, your, your entire perspective, first of all, it rocked who I wanted to be when I grow up, my question of country, but both, right? The US government wasn't exactly uh, forthcoming, if you will. There was a lot of, just because they let Ponich take the role with zero support. So my questioning of who's on first and what the hell is happening, just opened this Pandora's box of who am I? Why am I here? What's the point? And to the point that, so now I'm home and now I'm, I'm back in Racine and I know every journalist on the planet covering the story. I have their phone numbers and I'm watching their bylines being printed going, this is garbage. So I started faxing them to them. And they were like, they li literally took the journalistic pyramid and went, flipped it. So mm -hmm. the lead became, the lead was buried. This randomness came to the top and there was all of this angst around why is this happening? Where is it happening? And then at a certain point, um, the media agency that I was working with in Chicago was indeed supported by Helen Bentley. But when I came home, that was a whole that was a whole other affair. Um, they had made strange bedfellows with Milosevic's crew, and so I had to part ways in a very kind of um, strategic way, not to get myself all. Um, I was more afraid in the U.S. to be quite honest in in the community than I was back in Serbia because people didn't know what was going on back there. So it was this, um, you want to believe one thing, you don't, it was crazy to put it. So how did you adjust back to normal life? I mean, after I understand you got into corporate communications and for a company now have your own firm. I mean, how did you make that adjustment? Because it sounds like that was, you know, was a, a searing experience, time. that whole There was a moment time. in time, well, first of all, I've got to a document that I couldn't believe I saw at this media center when I was indeed going to say hello and goodbye mm -hmm. to them, that as they um, were in a meeting, I literally faxed to a journalist who screamed mm -hmm. at me on the phone for half an hour going, it will be obvious where this came from, so go hide. Go bury your head somewhere, either come back wow. here he was so worried and the story was so big that it would come back to me that he handed it to the Washington Post and I'm still pissed that it appeared on page three and not on page one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, I would be too. So then I come, yeah. so then I go to Arizona. I come to Arizona. I wanted yeah. me to bury my head in the sand. So I'm gonna go visit family in Arizona. And I go back to Wisconsin just to visit my folks and the phone rings. And now it's one of the people I worked with, with Ponich asking me to go back and monitor the first Bosnian elections. Again, I have this moment of wild horses could stop me, right? Let's go, right. when do we leave? 
that's when we entered Sarajevo 10 days before the last um, peace accord held. Okay. And I and a, a female exec from um, one of Panish's companies in the Balkans were um, took the long car ride from Belgrade to Sarajevo, which I've taken many times to visit my aunt. Mm -hmm. But you can't go into the city because the your license plate back in the day gives you up to what city you're from. Mm -hmm. You're in right. a war zone, like that's not happening. So they drop us off at a bridge. You've got kids armed to the hilt, the kids. I mean, I at the time was maybe 26. They were maybe 18, 19. And a guy came up to us and asked us whether we were part of the prisoner exchange. And, you know, and I'm looking down, like there's, it is literally a bridge and there, there's nothing stopping anyone from shooting you and no one right. would care. Right. Not even for five mm -hmm. seconds. So you start cracking jokes with the people who are, you know, armed so that they start easing off. And by the time we were picked up, everyone was having a jolly good time because there's no other way to cut through the tension. But there was no point in time that I was afraid because I knew the people who had called me to do this were going to come from Sarajevo because they had gone before us to set everything up to pick us up. And indeed they did. And at, there was a moment in time in that city as I looked to see how most of the city was intact, how the fighting had happened from, you know, one mountainside to the hospital, which was a tall, one of the tallest buildings in town and the Holiday Inn. And I just sat there and bawled. For, it, was like, it was like one of those first moments in all of this nonsense that I truly, truly just lost it and said, enough enough if i can't and, and help god don't keep dragging me into this if i can't affect the change that i'm sure it was devastating for u.s listeners uh sarajevo was the site of the winter olympics i'm trying to remember when was that was it in the 80s 84 84 just before all this happened so i think i saw some documentary after and you know where the um ice skating walls and ski runs it was just like nothing it's just devastating so i'm sure all those sort of images are but, probably in your mind of what it once was but once you realize because i went to go see sniper alley mm. it's funny you know sitting at the hotel at the holiday inn um as we were getting our assignments of where we were going to go um as monitors all of the bus boys in the you know the the folks in the through the kitchen right, would start talking to me because I was the youngest among all of these people. And so they would tell me more mm. than I possibly could read here on the news of what actually was happening. And so one of them willingly took me to see where this was. And when he explained to me that the only time anyone had to cross was when the authorities in the city turned off the water on a slow news day, I was sick because the media made this, made a really bad, ugly history and a situation that is thousands of years in the making, 10 times worse. So, so you come back to the US, you decide, okay, I think 
you know, unless God wants me to go again, I'm done with this. How in the world do you move on with your life in Phoenix and corporate communications? And how do you do that from the searing experience? So I had one foot here and I still had one foot there. You know, you still have to survive. You still have to make money. So I had what I call random communications jobs. Um, still kind of open to the opportunity, especially when Milosevic was ousted and in came the first um, democratically elected president of Serbia. And then came the phone calls about, you know, wanting to help work for him. Of course I was in, I was all in. Three days before I was scheduled to leave, he was assassinated. And that really was oh the my end. Gosh. That was the end. That was the, the moment. I had this moment of, and even through the bombing of Belgrade, which I don't wish any human to actually understand what it's like to watch on CNN the building that you know you have family living in being shelled. It ripped us all apart, but um, my hope was that that was a new day and a new leaf and the turning of the page. And that just, that's the moment when I went, I can't do this anymore. And that was the same moment that I'll say the phone rang and I um, was interviewed by several education companies. And especially those that were dealing with international international students may appealed to my heart because I knew instinctively that what happened in the Balkans, you had an economic fallout that led to a brain drain. Who was left behind were those that had no options. And if, if you peel the onion back and you look at where, where the lines were drawn and where the biggest fighting was, you'll see that there were the lowest levels of education. Those two things are inevitably, inevitably tied. It sounds like what I'm hearing, Ruzier, is you had this, I don't know, maybe a dream or mission form as you were growing up and then spent some time in what was then Yugoslavia. Or if maybe, maybe I can't resurrect the whole country and undo thousands of years of conflict, but maybe I can do something. Right. I can have, I can, you know, a little bit that can maybe move it on a good path, but then at a certain point, that dream, that mission died, if you will, that, you know, gee, I can't do this. Uh, it's not my mission. It sounds like your mission shifted. And out of that, the whole passion for education and the importance of, I think you say, education being the bedrock of democracy. It sounds like the, from that mission that cha- it changed for you is something else. Um there was a moment in time where I was like, look, um, as bad as it is that this situation existed and all of these amazing people with great potential were leaving the country, there, there was this moment of time of, yes, but one day, that same person that is left behind who rules pick a city, will one day pick up the phone and call an intel and want an intel to come to their country, to come to their city and open up, you know, offices and jobs. And guess who they're going to have to talk to? Someone from the Balkans. 
right? I, there came a moment where the opportunity for globalization and being in a position to influence bigger, greater change kind of woke up in me to go, come on, you know, get on with it. So how would you describe your mission now? Because I know you have corporate communications, but it sounds like there's a mission that you're passionate about that really animates and drives you. How would you describe that mission for you today? Um, you know, there's been a lot that's influenced how I got here. But for me, it still goes back to telling a really good authentic story that can affect how a person feels and can affect change. So um, we recently did, and I, and I am really proud of the fact that COVID has, the COVID and cancer, the hit at the same time. And I have to yeah. chuckle because when you asked me to do a write-up, I had to literally go back and add the cancer. <laughs> and that's amazing. So just for listeners, so in the midst of COVID, you got a cancer diagnosis which is like, you've had so much on your plate. It's like, you must've thought, really? Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. I mean, is it going to be like plagues of locusts and what, you know, what, you know, what, what next kind of thing? No question. Right. It would, yeah. you know, I also have this um, sense that I have this uh, guardian angel and her name is Maud and she drinks <laughs> and she takes me out to a ledge. <laughs> and by the time she kind of figures out where I am, she always saves me. But, but, but there's this moment of dangling off a ledge. So to me, to me, it was more, I truly believe God tests those that he loves and that, you know, there are people who can go through stuff and still not get it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was one more speed bump, another, it's not an obstacle. It's another walk through fire, right? To get to the other side, because I, I, what, I was... I, what I want is right there. And this is the one more thing I've got to get through. So, I mean, I know this is a little metaphysical, but I wonder if God's saying, well, I know Rougier is made of very strong stuff, so I'm going to test it, but I know she can handle it. I don't know whether that's biblical or not. Do you ever feel like he feels like, you know, not everybody can handle it, but Rougier can. But I also you know, feel she can like learn um, life is not really a make-your-own-mystery book. <laughs> Right. I feel like there is that if people stepped back and looked at the serendipity that inevitably leads us all, I will never forget the first interview Oprah did with Deepak Chopra. And he explained how you know, modern medicine has gotten us to a point that you can open up a, a brain and understand where things, where things happen and why they're happening. But we can't figure out where thoughts come from. So to me, these forks in the road are those whispers of, here comes the next path. Here's the next chapter. But I also really feel like, you know, you've got two choices in life. You can win or you can be right. And being right is a lonely mountain. But the places where that have been my crucible moments have inevitably been where, because my nature is win-win, 
right? Mm-hmm. My nature is um, let's figure it out. And for those of us from the Balkans, we're really good at figuring it out, you know, fig- making making it work and finding a middle ground. When that's not possible, that's been when I've hit a wall, right? That's been the moment. There was no win-win for me in sitting in a newsroom watching inaccuracies being printed. There was no moment for me when, you know, I'm in a corporate setting and inevitably there um, was a comment made. And I remember like lightning striking going, okay, here comes the next chapter because I had no choice at that moment. There was no, everything I tried to make it a win-win became a, I had to take a stand. It transgressed that moment of win-win. So people are listening to this, there might be young people listening and some might have gone through hard times, maybe disillusioned about everything from the world to politics to, you know, business people and all of the stuff that happens in the workplace that is, uh, you know, often not uh, appropriate. There's probably a bunch of young people that are disillusioned. What message of hope do you have for those who maybe they were idealistic and had a dream and that maybe it's been dented a bit or shattered a bit by the hardships of life and by the actions of others? What, What message of hope do you have for young people that maybe, maybe their dream and vision has got tarnished? What message of hope do you have for people like that? You can't let the outside, you can't let the outside world really stop you from pursuing your dreams. It's planted. It's the whisper in your ear. It's the thought that modern medicine can't figure out where it's coming from. There's a reason God gave you that dream. And even if you have to put it on the back shelf because you have a family, you're doing this, doing that, doing the other, the fact that it's there, one way or another, it will come back around. Inevitably, it will come back around. There will be an opportunity if you open yourself up to it, right? So um, if you don't talk to the person you're sitting next to on a plane, you have no idea why God put that person next to you, right? If you don't open yourself up to the fact that the people in your life are meant to be there at this particular time, good, bad, and ugly, right? You have the power, and I have many times literally made a list of, especially because I'm a saver, right? I will say to everyone. And I've made a list of, and in fact, I've talked, I've told people, I've told my own family that I've seen, you know, killing themselves to try to help a community or, or family members to go, how many people would you have helped if you had turned this way and not, there's a point in time where you're not helping anyone because you're drowning in a negativity that you can't change. So I have parted, parted ways. I've never burned a bridge, but I have definitely turned a page where just because we're friends, I won't get dragged into that drama. I won't get, there's a certain level of focus and energy that you need to get through a day and to get where you're going. And everything is one, literally one day at a time. The world can change this quickly. And if you don't leave yourself open 
to the possibility that um, good can happen. It won't. Mm. And I think that's the other that's the other lesson for me really has been because I am from the Balkans and we're all kind of moody broody. You know, I like a good rainy day. Uh, <laughs> okay. in Phoenix, right? So the irony of that is incredible. Uh, so pulling myself out of contemplative um we like to wallow. We like to tell war stories. We like to go, but there's no hope in that. There's no affecting change in that. But it sounds like you've chosen a different path. You've been through some very tough experiences, seen some, you know, uh, terrible things that people do to each other for reasons that go back thousands of years that probably nobody can even remember where it started and why. But yet, you could be cynical, you could be disillusioned. I think you're obviously wiser as, as the years go by. Hopefully, wisdom happens. But yet, you're not, you're not cynical. You're not like, I think you still have a sense of hope and optimism. And that, to me, is a great gift. Because a lot of people, having seen what you've seen, said, like, there's no hope in humanity. Right. You know, wars will go on forever. The Balkans will always, I mean, you know, the, it was the Balkans, you know, the started World War One, and um, yeah, speaking of Sarajevo, <laughs> it's been in the center of a lot of things. It's like, what reason is there for hope? You know, the war will break out. You can be negative, but yet I sense you have a sense of not naive optimism, but informed optimism, if you will, that you, you choose to hope rather than choose to wallow for your whole life. And I do think, though, you know, people when you open yourself up to having a conversation like this, right? You do have to talk about the things that you've gone through and not in a way that it gives them oxygen, but that gives you perspective. And one of the reasons that, you know, the, the videos that you have seen outside of now running a company and publicity and stuff, the reason that I really started talking for many, many years, I didn't talk about any of this, especially the stuff in the Balkans. And part of the thing that has driven me is I see a lot of parallels in the world today. I know what it's like to go into one family's home and they're listening to this news station and go to that family's home and they're listening to another news station. How families, you know, through politics break up. And I've seen this movie before and it doesn't end well. And so one thing that's galvanized me is there's no one I know from the Balkans that has is, that isn't having some sort of the same kind of deja vu of it changes that fast. And, you know, the thought of, well, we're not them, right? But them could be anybody. You right. could look at uh, Northern Ireland. Right. Northern Ireland and, and the rest of Ireland, you know, Catholic, Protestant, it's like, well, why are you attacking them? Well, they attack one of us. And, it, you know, it's gone on there certainly for hundreds of years. I mean, there's conflict anywhere that, oh, those people don't get it. You know, they're the enemy. I mean, it's, there are it's, it's everywhere. Three beautiful families in Phoenix who all came from the outskirts of Sarajevo. One is Serbian, one is Croatian, and one is Muslim. They were godparents to each other's kids and, lived and were neighbors. 
and they left at the same time together because they knew they'd be ripped apart if they hadn't. So, you know, God works in mysterious ways. When you see things like that, you think miracles can't happen. Exactly. Because rationally, those three should not no. be friends. It makes no sense. But for many, many years, they were. And this is the lesson from what politics can do, what economics can do, when people, when fear, really, of I don't know what will happen next starts to take hold. I feel like the last four years in this country, there needs to be some sort of a cathartic um, for last 10, some sort of a cathartic discussion around, we may see things differently, but there's far more that unites us than divides us. And that's a very important message. Everyone is too afraid to even start that conversation, that that's what worries me. That is a perfect note to say, I think I heard the captain, the, uh, captain turn on the fasten seatbelt sign and we're getting to the point where it's time to begin thinking about landing the plane. Before we do that though, Ruja, I would be remiss if I did not give listeners the opportunity to uh, find out more about Pro One Media. So tell them how they can find you and your services online. ProOneMedia.com, we have done, 35 years of uh, media and and video production. And I'm very, very blessed. Equally, I found them serendipitously. I was, um, you know, in another big publicly traded corporate company. And my father actually had an accident with my, I was worried that he was with my son. And I remember having this moment of, can I leave? It's like I'm, cha- you know, the the whole corporate setting. You we, once you walk in that door, there's this sense that that certain rules apply. In any event, I ran out the door. Right, I thought I'd been in an accident, and I stopped at one point and said, you know, there's a big part of my story about my son. Right, I went through many many miscarriages and a divorce and again, had no interest in leaving Apollo. And a friend of mine called me to serve as a reference because he was looking for a job. And as I was talking to this person, he was like, Do you, would you mind meeting with our CEO? So I decided to have breakfast with, you know, lovely lady. By dinner, I had job offer and I ended up in Florida. <laughs> what I didn't know is that um, outside of being a very powerful businesswoman, she had four kids, six grandkids, and she and her husband as an attorney would crank call their grandkids as Disney characters during lunch. <laughs> and they knew I was in trouble. And she'd, she'd pick at me when we'd be on like a bumpy plane ride to like the middle of nowhere. And my fatalistic tendencies as being from the Balkans of like, you know, if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. So like, do you wanna be a mother? Do you wanna be a mother? Do you want, so I didn't tell anybody. And I started fertility treatments, found specialists, and of course it worked because it's crazy. And um, I have an eight-year-old son. So when my father had this accident and I'm sitting in my corporate role, I'm driving to the scene going, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And I went, I have to jump off this corporate ladder. This child is more important to me than um, necessarily this you know, stature and career. And by complete happenstance, I ran into this company that was 
the couple that owned it previously were retiring. And the entire client base are corporate companies that are publicly traded, which is the world I came from. So again, it was very, very serendipitous. Um, and you, having your own company, you get to at least have a little bit more say about your hours and flexibility and being with your son. So yeah, and it sounds like you've continued to follow your own path and, you know, listen to those still small voice. However, we, you know, uh, think of those little turning points in our life and, for sure. You know, and it's given um, me the opportunity to help not, a lot of nonprofits. So mm -hmm. it's given me, uh, because now I'm the person who says, yes, we can. <laughs> right. And that sounds a lot like what we talk about at Crucible Leadership and Beyond the Crucible as a life of significance. Uh, you are definitely well ensconced, well along the road to uh, an entirely different kind of life of significance than maybe uh, than you lived earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, we talk about a life of significance being a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. And clearly that's what you do and have sought to do, I don't know, pretty much sounds like your whole life. So great. it's the definition, I think, of a life of significance, which is, to me, what we think life's all about. So That last sound was the wheels touching down on the runway. So uh, the captain has indeed landed the plane. Gather your peanut bags, get your luggage. Um, as we go, though, I, uh, there, there are three, and there are plenty more than three. I pulled three, I think. And actually, Ruja, I stole one from you from the sheet that you filled out before we did this. So I pulled two, and then I stole one from you. So I'm, I'll give you full credit when I read it. But takeaways from this episode that I think listeners can apply to their own lives and their own crucibles. The first one is... Uh, and this was uh, all over your story as a young woman, Ruja, is don't let fear cancel your vision. Don't let it override your passion. Sometimes it will lead you to not just experience a crucible, but in your case, it led you to jump into a crucible, which is a different kind of experience than we've had on the show before. Your skills and passions, listener, may be exactly the things needed to help others endure a crucible that they're going through. Your life of significance could actually begin by choosing to enter a crucible. That's number one. Number two, uh, as we say in every show, it's, it's interesting, at, at the end of every show, and I'm going to say it in a few minutes, we say that your crucibles don't have to be the end of your story. They're not the end of your story. They can be the beginning of a new and more rewarding story if you learn the lessons of them. And one of the things that we heard from Ruja today is that she recognized in the midst of the crucible she'd been through a commonality, that education was a dividing line in some of the things she saw in the strife in countries that she experienced. There's a line of education. That was the line of demarcation between people who got through it okay and people who didn't. And she's dedicated herself since moving into this new chapter in her life. She's dedicated herself for more than a decade of raising education levels. As she puts it in her bio, um, or as someone put it in a story on her, she has that education is the bedrock of democracy and economic sustainability. And that Ruja has worked to bring education to the forefront of corporate activism and giving. And that all started because she learned a lesson from her crucibles. 
And then the last point, which I'm stealing shamelessly. Well, it's not really shamelessly because I'm, I'm saying that it was Ruja uh, created it. She wrote this in the sheet that we asked people to tell us about themselves before we do the show. Ruja said this uh, about some advice she would give to listeners. This was her fourth point. I love this. I am going to shamelessly steal this in my personal life as I talk to people. So I'm just, just so you know. But she said this, the fourth point she made. One way to get through your crucibles, call on the good old fashioned sense of spite, quote unquote. <laughs> Not what you would think it means, right? Being spiteful toward people. This is what Ruja means by that. In spite of him or her or that or this situation or that situation, in spite of these things, you're going to move on. You're going to keep at it. You're going to keep pursuing your life of significance. She adds at the end, nothing is more gratifying than being underestimated. It is my suspicion that uh, that has happened fewer and fewer times in your life as life has gone on. You are a hard woman to underestimate. Listener, thank you for spending time with us today on Beyond the Crucible. As always, Warwick and I would ask if you like what you've heard here, if you've been, uh, if you've found hope, uh, you found uh, wisdom, you found some action steps you can take to get through your own crucibles from this, please click subscribe to the podcast so that you can not miss any other episode and help Warwick and I get the show out to more people. Until the next time we are together, remember what has shown through in this conversation with Ruja Markovic, and that is this. Your crucible experiences are not the end of your story. In fact, they can be the beginning, as they have been for Ruja, to a new chapter in your story that can become the most rewarding chapter in your story. Why can it become the most rewarding chapter in your story? Because when you learn the lessons of those crucibles, you can apply them to what you do next, to the chapter you write next, and that chapter is the most fulfilling that you'll experience because in the end, it leads to a life of significance.